Hi everyone, it's Christina Herrick, Produce Editor for The Packer, and I am here today to share with you our latest tip, the Iceberg podcast episode, this time focusing on cybersecurity. Stories such as a Las Vegas casino being hacked through a fish tank pump or cyber criminals holding an entire city's functions at ransom are harrowing tales that may seem like the plot line of the latest Hollywood blockbuster, but not applicable to today's world. But Eric Regnier, Vice President of Operations at Zag Technical Services, an information technology consulting firm, joins Rob Collings, Marketing Director for Zag, and Melinda Goodman, President of Full Tilt Marketing, on the latest episode to share the very real and eminent threat cybersecurity plays in the increasingly technological world of agriculture. Take it away, Rob and Melinda. Welcome back to the Tip of the Iceberg podcast with the Packer and talking all things ag tech. I'm your host, Rob Collings, Marketing Director at Zag Technical Services, and I'm joined by my co-host, Melinda Goodman at Full Tilt Marketing. So, hey, Melinda, what is new in your world? Well, it's fall in North Dakota, so, you know, busy work things that need to happen. I have two apple trees in my backyard. I'm certainly not as cool as produce people with, like, thousands of acres of apple trees, but I still picked a lot of apples. Also, fun little weird fact about mine at North Dakota, we have the Norse Kusta Fest here that we celebrated. It is the largest Scandinavian festival in North America. So it was a fun time. Uh, lots of art, lots of music, got to embrace my heritage a little bit. But also, fun fact about Scandinavia, did you know that Norway is one of the few countries of the world that has a clearly defined cybersecurity strategy at a national level, and it was introduced way back in 2003. For me, that's shocking that in the age of escalating cybersecurity, and obviously that could be a super awesome ploy at a very governmental, political level, that every company, or every country, let alone country, doesn't have some kind of strategy or plan. Well, you're right. And you know what? Cybersecurity issues are happening all the time, all day, every day. Uh, the big ones make the news, but the many, many hundreds uh, of others that don't make the news that sometimes have catastrophic effects for businesses and the people they employ and industry are happening all the time. And I think we need to talk about it. We promised that at the start of this series of podcasts that we'd find the guy to talk about it. And I think I found the guy, Melinda. Is the fish tank today? There may be fish tank talk. Ooh. Maybe. We'll see. But I think there are bigger fish to fry, Melinda. <laughs> so today we're chatting with Eric Rignier, the VP of Operations at Zag Technical Services, a colleague for whom I have a huge amount of respect. Eric has been with Zag since 2021, where he's also held roles as a project manager, manager of Zag's IT and security and compliance line of business. He has multiple degrees and certifications, but also wholly understands the importance of security and mission readiness, thanks to his 13 years in the US Navy as a fast attack submarine officer. Now, Melinda, there is more. Not just his passion for tech and business security that drives his role as ag, he also spent a considerable portion of his childhood on the family farm in Nebraska. So today, each of these or these experiences shapes a powerful point of view about the importance of operational readiness and business continuity for the fresh produce industry. So Eric, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much, Rob. I appreciate the kind introduction. Hello, Melinda. Look forward to the conversation today. It's great to be with you. 
Hey, Eric, so glad that you're here to share some cool stories with us and uh, just some good information for our listeners. I would like to get to know our guests a little bit before we get to the nuts and bolts of talking shop. The whole submarine life to me is fascinating. I mean, an ag, a good day or a bad day on the farm probably looks vastly different than it does in a submarine on a good or bad day deep in the sea. So tell me a little bit about the best and worst parts of submarine life. I have some guesses on what might be the worst, but I'm curious. And how's the perspective changed now that you're topside? Well, there's an awful lot to, to share there. And as Rob will tell you, once you get me started about talking submarines, it's pretty hard to get me to stop. So I try to be brief. With regards to the things that I like most about submarines, I really enjoyed uh, fundamentally the people, how tight-knit the community was, how skilled all of the operators were that you interacted with, how much you had to rely upon one another, but also the technology involved uh, with submarines. It's basically a spaceship that we operate just under the ocean instead of out, out in space. And then also the variability of the mission sets themselves. So on any one day when uh, we're getting ready to go out to sea, I was the ship's chief engineering officer. So I oversaw the director department, all of the, the, uh, the operators that maintain the ship's hotel loads, hydraulics, and these kinds of things. And so to get the ship ready to go out to sea, we come in somewhere around midnight or so, and we brief a, a reactor startup to bring the reactor critical, start up all the propulsion systems, bring the turbine engines online, warm them up, ready to go for underway, bring the ship's uh, electrical turbines online, and uh, power the ship of uh, its own power by shore. Complete that evolution, that'd be about uh, four hours or so, and then oversee you'd be the, the team of teams conducting that operation. And then it wouldn't by any means be uncommon to shift gears immediately and begin briefing the underway from ports, and then make your way up into the conning tower of the submarine and oversee a junior officer, learning to qualify as a submarine officer, him or herself, and uh, pilot the ship out, out of port and out to sea, and then go back down into the bowels of the ship and uh, go about your business for, uh, for a, uh, an hour or two. And then if you were lucky, uh, you could also find yourself as off to the deck as I was um, overseeing a watch team to dive the submarine from the surface and get to, to doing the, the good work for the country, um, executing our missions uh, out at sea. So those days are certainly grueling, but very varied experiences, just a lot of complexity of technology, a lot of really unique challenges and some fantastic people to meet them with. So that was probably, you know, some of the best days that I had on board submarines. Um, as to some of the, maybe the more negative aspects, I'll say today's day and age, we're so used to being interconnected with everyone and everything. Here today, a couple of years uh, removed from submarines, it's just impossible for me to, to think about not having my cell phone with me, not being instantly connected to, to anyone and not being able to, to check Instagram or Twitter or X or whatever we're calling it now and, and get the, the instant update. Well, part of the core competence of submarines, they're stealthy and part of that means you don't communicate unless you intend to. So no email, no phone calls of loved ones, no Amazon, not, none of that. And so it can be very isolating and uh, you sure have to learn how to get along with your coworkers, your crew members, because that's all you got when you're down there. I mean, I'm not sure that I want to live in a submarine, but at the same time, I could probably use that disconnected period of time. Maybe we all could use practicing that every once in a while, even if it's for a day or a few hours. I don't know. That sounds troubling to me. But um, <laughs> Eric, in all seriousness, thank you for you and your service. I think what you and everyone in the military does protect our nation and Western democracy, I think, is critically important. So, Ceci, thanks for that. So, what does all this have to do with ag and so forth? So, look, you started the year off being named Interim VP of Operations in August. So, congratulations for that and promoted to VP of Operations more recently. How did you go from spending time on the family's farm in Nebraska to to fast attack submarines that you just described to, I don't know, is it the corner office in tech now? 
Well, I'm not sure that any of us have a corner offices or what our offices are and we're all interacting on Zoom and Teams, but it's been a bit of a varied career up to date, but there are, there are broad strokes and themes that help paint the narrative or at least the guiding post for me along the way. Growing up in Ag, family farm in Nebraska and Minnesota, where I grew up, started off with a, just a deep love of agriculture, working the land and participating in the nation's food supply. I, my, my earliest job, I think I was four or five years old, mowing the couple acres, you know, the, the farm that we were um, working on. And my dad had to weigh down the tractor seat, the riding lawnmower seat in order to meet the pressure sensor. It wasn't heavy enough and strapped blocks to the pedals that I could do it. And my mom the whole time saying, this is this is not a great idea. And dad's like, no, the boy will be fine. So I was fine. And coming from those experiences, just my upbringing, the characteristics my parents imbued within me just made the themes of service and defense really resonate with me. So when I was in middle school, high school, contemplating what I wanted next, I had some opportunities to scope what it would be like to attend one of the service academies, West Point, the Naval Academy, the Air Force Academy, and uh, pursue an appointment to one of those institutions for my education, but more importantly, for the uh, the career on the other side, uh, serving the country in a military service. Um, so those themes of service, of defense, during me to the service academy, I applied to the Naval Academy and uh, was fortunate enough to receive an appointment with the objective of becoming a submarine officer. I just, I don't know what it, quite know what it was, but um, even as a young man, the, the thought of interacting with the technologies that I spoke about before, the varied mission sets, the challenge, operating a spaceship under the water, it all just really resonated with me and, uh, and drew me to that. So, you know, fast forward through two tours on two separate submarines, both fast attacks. Life takes you to different directions. My wife's uh, career took her to the West Coast, and I um, followed along with her and uh, completed my time in service at a Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, um, where I leveraged some time there to get some broader exposure to computer science and cybersecurity and pivoted into tech specifically landing at Zag Technical Services, where it was a really happy confluence of themes that have kind of guided me throughout my life. Service to the clients that we serve, security, uh, working to support their uh, cybersecurity services, their cybersecurity posture, defense, and then, of course, the uh, the love of ag that, uh, that I began my life with. Just a quick view of into my journey thus far, and, you know, story's not done. I think people's stories are always fascinating and people that rise to the top are clearly in essence of all the best parts of themselves and their upbringing that kind of intersects all the right times and right places in their life. And it's clearly where you're at at this moment. And there's no doubt part of the U.S. military security and mission readiness have been your top priority for a long time in your life. So now here you are at the intersection of food and the food supply chain. And definitely every cyber criminal is looking to get an upper hand to gain access to critical systems wherever they are, right? It could be the government, it could be a submarine, it could be the food supply chain. That's when you win is when you find these vulnerable points that can cause pain. So I'm guessing there's some security level clearance stuff you can't tell us about. You know, we've heard crazy stories. You've probably heard crazy things. We've joked for months about a Vegas casino being hacked through a fish tank. And then how does stuff like these even happen in the internet of things and connected worlds today? Well, this is all of a like in the broad strokes of technology adoption. The computer revolution brought some pretty amazing uh, capabilities to industry across the board. But with it, of course, came vulnerabilities that uh, we're, we're just starting to appreciate and fully grapple with. Uh, certainly in the uh, industrial control space where uh, protocols developed in the 70s, 80s gave rise to programmable logic controllers that uh, perhaps are crucial to the functioning of systems that we can't take offline to patch or to replace. Power stations, hospitals, petroleum transport pipelines, these types of things. 
But fast forward into the more modern era, we're continuing to build momentum on this technology revolution through the proliferation of devices at the edge, these IoT devices that you reference. While we work to make computers more ingrained into every aspect of our daily life, we always have to be mindful to the increased attack surface that this represents to nefarious actors that want to exploit them. Every computing platform is an opportunity for someone to exploit and use towards malicious ends, regrettably. And we always have to, to keep in mind both the advantages of technology that we're bringing to bear, the convenience that it has for our life. It is amazing, and I sure love it, to be able to open your garage door with your phone. But at the same time that, uh, that you're leveraging that benefit, you have to keep in mind that presents a vulnerability that may be actively being exploited now. And if it isn't, someone's working very hard to do so. So you bring up this really interesting example of this casino being hacked, uh, breached, and data exfiltrated from a fish tank sensor. And, and that's a real thing, leveraging themes that we were talking about thus far. Uh, there's an IoT device. This is a, a thermometer used in an aquatic system to maintain uh, life support for some of the, the animals on display within this casino. This device doesn't just communicate internal to that casino's network. It has a communication path to the larger internet so that you can control systems you can maintain monitoring of this fish tank for operators when they're remote and they're not on campus. That's a great thing. Lots of convenience there. Means that uh, the folks uh, can keep the fish happy and, uh, and the guests entertained and, and all like this. But it also exposes that sensor to the outside world, the outside internet, and those attackers that we talked about before. They're looking to exploit these edge devices and find any nook and cranny that they can crawl their way into a computer network. And that's exactly what happened in this instance. So operators at the casino looking to confer the benefits of edge computing, IoT devices, expose a crack into their internal network, this hard perimeter that we worked so hard to protect our networks from the outside world. Attackers got in, leveraged lateral movements, all the techniques that we've come, become conversant in over the years to compromise further systems, identify sensitive data, exfiltrate it, and then conduct an extortion event. Regrettably, this isn't an isolated event, and uh, we're going to see a lot more of this before things calm down. If they do it all. Every company, big and small, relies on technology. From the field to the warehouse to administration, uptime stability is critical to your bottom line and to supply chain continuity. Cybersecurity is one of the greatest risks to modern agriculture. Contact Zag Technical Services for your technology risk assessment and let us check your tech. Visit zagtech.com. It's kind of having a little bit of fun perhaps with fish tank example. I'm sure it wasn't funny to the business nor the people whose information was exfiltrated. And indeed, you know, we've also recently seen MGM was involved in a very large incident, the cyber incident that impacted guests and others in the property. So we'll definitely get to ag in a moment and where cybersecurity is potentially impacting ag. But, you know, why does this keep happening? We know that you know, we have nation states who are interested in America's IP and intellectual property. We have nation states, cyber criminals perhaps supported or left to be able to behave chasing America's money and uh, businesses. Their impact, they're, they're breaching schools and hospitals. What's going on here? What are businesses or organizations not doing that they should be doing? Well, 
I'll address those those questions in, in pieces. You know, the first part is why does this keep happening? And and I'll say it's happening because the criminals are really good because offense in a lot of ways is easier than defense, and because we have a lot of ground to make up when it comes to layered cybersecurity. There's this perception that I think a lot of people are at risk at of thinking that these hackers they're going after someone else. They're not coming after me. Oh, and these are the script kitties of the past. This is some teenager in a hoodie with a couple lines of code flashing around the screen in a basement somewhere trying to wreak havoc on the internet. We have got to expunge that thought from our reality. These are incredibly well-resourced, well-motivated, well-positioned cyber criminal organizations that are constantly working to evolve their business model to maximize their revenue potential and their efficiency in doing so. It's a shame that these brilliant individuals are putting their efforts towards ill because the world would be such a better place if their creativity and their tenacity were put to better use. So it's really important in a bear's repeat that we have to take this threat seriously because these folks are the real deal. These are the pros and they're not coming for someone else. They're coming for us. So the other part of it, offense being easier than defense, I really do believe that, you know, the attackers have to get lucky once. They have to be right once. Defenders have to be right all the time against all things. And that's a very difficult charge. And then the other part that makes it really difficult is there's a lot of ground to make up. And I discuss in brief some of the technological debts we are carrying forward with us as industry from initial development within the, the computing space, the 70s, the 80s, of legacy protocols that have become so important to the functioning of our society and our economy that we can't take them offline for long enough even to patch or upgrade them. They're that vital. So we're carrying an enormous amount of technical debt, and this is just one example that makes it really hard for us to overcome and fully remediate all of the known threats such that we have to be in a position where we're constantly making a risk calculus, risk acceptance decisions, putting a layer of security in place to compensate for uh, risks that we might be uh, carrying forward either knowingly or without choice due to the technical debt uh, aspect uh, that I spoke to before. My mind is spinning. I'm not going to lie. I'm worried about my garage door right now. <laughs> Well, and not to scare you, but that's just where it begins. You know, garage door, and of course, you have smart ovens, and that's maybe of a like. It's, but how about your car? Car is connected to the internet, and uh, you think about how catastrophic it would be for a cyber criminal to attack uh, the computing systems that control your vehicle as you're speeding down the highway. And uh, that's not perhaps as far fetched as some people might think it is. Man, on that note, now I have so much more to think about. So obviously, all joking aside about the casino and the fish tank hack, I mean, casinos, big money, high rollers, oppressive guest lists. That seems like a powerful thing to hack that everybody might want access to. But translate this into farm and food supply chains. Like, where are those vulnerabilities and blind spots and maybe that tech debt that nobody's thinking about? Yeah, uh, address those, those questions in two parts. The first thing you mentioned is that the casinos, the oil companies, the global agricultural manufacturing processes, the meat processors, the JBLs of the world, the big targets, surely the attackers are going after them because of what a, a high payout the attackers will get in doing so and not going after the little guys. That perception is out there. I, I've heard it from folks and it couldn't be farther from the truth. The cyber criminals are just as happy to extort a ransom or to get a, an extortion a demand paid from a little guy or a medium gal or the big players equally. They're coming after everyone and we have to all prepare uh, collectively to defend and be ready for when they do succeed. And I'll, I'll touch on that a little bit later. 
The second part of your question is, where are the vulnerabilities and the blind spots? And I try to be hopeful with the message of cybersecurity. And though I say what I'm about to say, knowing that I'm perhaps challenging myself in that outcome, the vulnerabilities and blind spots, they're all around. And that's because technology is all around. Technology is becoming central to the operation of processing plants, of farming machinery out in the field, our logistics infrastructure, our supply chains. It's all around. And it's not just your own technology that you're having to worry about. It's your supporting partners, your vendors, the refrigeration vendor that controls cooling and air conditioning for your production plant. How secure are they? How are they accessing your environments? And do they have the opportunity to interact with other computing systems, placing you at risk and essentially extending your own computing perimeter into the supporting partners? So the vulnerabilities and blind spots are all around. And I would argue that the attack surface is only growing for these really motivated cyber printable organizations that are looking to compromise us each and every day. So I know that that's not a particularly uplifting um, comment, but there are some things that we can do to protect ourselves, to be ready for these criminals when they do come knocking, and I'm sure we'll get to that shortly. Yeah. Well, it's quite sobering. So look, we've identified the problem here, right? We have a sense of the risk. So what do we do about it? How does the fresh produce and food supply chain in the industry prioritize technology, prioritize the investments? How do they prioritize cybersecurity to protect the business, their employees, and also their ability to uh, feed the nation? two parts of this, Rob. The first is adopting an organizational commitment to implementing a layered cybersecurity model to minimize the chances that the criminals will penetrate your networks and be able to conduct a ransomware event or a data exfiltration. When I talk about this layered cybersecurity model, I'll, sometimes I'll say that, sometimes I'll say the security onion, use that interchangeably, but that the concept is, is in today's world, no, no one process, technology, or element to ensure that our people do the right things is going to be sufficient. It's going to have to take a combination of all those things, people, processes, technology, it working as a system to harden your organization against cybercriminal activity. So this dedication that I speak to of adopting the security onion, this layered cybersecurity model, it's, it's not a one-time fire and forget uh, discussion. It's an ongoing investment. It's an ongoing awareness that company executives all the way down to the frontline workers need to adopt and participate in on a daily basis and revisit over time to validate that this security onion is evolving with the company's own technology footprint, but also with the evolving threat landscape. The second part of it, so we just talked about working to ensure that the organization is doing everything that it can to keep the criminals out, but that the second part is having a crystal clear understanding and realization that despite how robust your security onion is, the criminals are still going to get in. They're still going to find a way in and you have to be ready for when they do. And this means having a robust incident response plan so that you can take swift action to kick the criminals out before they have the opportunity to do real harm. And in the worst case, have robust design disaster recovery procedures and capabilities in place such that, God forbid, the criminals get in, they uh, compromise the crown jewels of the company, and they're able to successfully perpetrate a ransomware attack and lock up all company systems. Companies have got to be in a position technologically with a robust backup and recovery technology stack, as well as recovery procedures to recover themselves within a timeframe that is acceptable to the business, not to pay the criminals. 
we cannot keep continuing to pay these criminals, perpetuating this activity against our peers in industry, but also maximizing the chance that the company that paid to begin with will be re-victimized. The stats on this change depending on when you read the article, but it's pretty conclusive that, that companies that do not invest to put themselves in the position to not pay a ransom and recover themselves, if they do pay, the chances that they are re-victimized, often by that same criminal organization, are over 70%. It's a pretty stark outlook and helps inform the return on investment from putting the measures in place on this side of the cybersecurity incident such that you cannot respond to that ransomware note. You can dismiss it, uh, work diligently, recover your systems, and get your people back to work. I'm a dystopian novel fan, and I'm bought into all the doomsday attack ideas, including obviously down my garage door. I don't have any canned goods to save me, but I'm certainly happy that people like you are on the job thinking about and preparing everybody for these possible risk moments that happen, because even under the best of circumstances, we can't prevent them. So I ask everybody this when they come on, if we're looking at the future of tech and agriculture, the food supply chain, are we ready? Where's it going? Leave us with some final thoughts? Well, I would say that the broad trend of, of increased technology adoption within the agricultural sector is not going to slow down. It's only going to accelerate. Um, edge computing, I think, will revolutionize our productivity in the field on the plant floor in our logistics chain and will only result in increased productivity for the industry as a whole and our ability to feed not just the nation, but the world. So very optimistic about the technology of outlay for agriculture and the ability for us all to, to meet our mission in providing for and securing the food supply. Now, all that said, as I mentioned earlier, decreased uh, and every computing platform is another opportunity for the bad guys and gals to get in. And so let's have a clear mind about that and let's work hand in hand while we're bringing these new capabilities to bear that we're engineering our systems with the appropriate safeguards that we're thinking every day about risk mitigation. We're making the proper investments to not overinvest in uh, security, but also to not underinvest in security and crucially be ready for when the criminals do penetrate your security onion, because eventually they will. Rob, what's your big takeaway today? Well, it's a few actually, Melinda. You know, the, I mean, the first is we need to go into this yeah, eyes wide open. Yeah. So I would say, please, for our listeners, do take cybersecurity seriously. It's one thing for me as the marketing guy to see it, but when people of Eric's experience and expertise see it, I think we should all listen. The second is, you know, to be invested in being able to respond and recover, as Eric just mentioned. I think that's an underappreciated element of a, a well-formed cybersecurity posture. And I think thirdly is actually this is sort of more a message for CEOs and the board. They really should be able to answer the question of how much risk they're willing to tolerate. Because what if someone says, I'm not a target or they're not interested in me, then what they're really saying is, I accept all the risk. I have no interest in mitigation of risk. Now, I think a CEO or a board member with that attitude, I'm going to get a bit passionate here, Melinda. I'm not sure they should be a CEO or a board member, right? If that's their attitude to this. And so they need to take it seriously. They need to understand this risk and then they can make their investment decisions based on the mitigation of that risk. So there are my takeaways. I'm so, so thrilled to have Eric join us today. I think whilst it's a kind of sobering conversation and we have joked about fish tanks and everything at the same time that there is hope here, right? And there are what paths forward that companies can take to protect themselves, to continue operations and not be impacted by this. So what was your big takeaway? I always look for those nuggets, right? That make it easier to tell the story of complicated things. And one of the things I heard Eric talk about in maybe not so many words was continuous improvement. This is not a one and done fix 
solution. This is a process of which we continue to add the onion layers, if you will, of, of different things we need to do. I think our industry is used to the idea of continuous improvement. They're used to the idea of continuing to get better at food safety because the science continues to grow. They're used to moving the bar on sustainability because the science grows and we have more tools, we have more options, we know more, we do better. And maybe that's how we talk about cybersecurity going forward. This isn't do it all right now. It's to Rob's point, understand your risk and your vulnerability and start putting efforts in place to minimize that risk and then set yourself on a path of continuous improvement. You don't have to do it all at once, but you have to start somewhere. Indeed. Eric, any final thoughts for us after we've rambled a little bit here? What's the real big key message you could just leave leave folks with one thing from today's chat? The threat is real, but we're empowered to do something about it through implementing your own uh, security onion, your layered cybersecurity defense model, leveraging people, process, and technology. You're able to effectively mitigate risk, and it, it doesn't have to be something that breaks the bank, but it does take uh, an organizational mindset and focus on it, and you have to be ready for when the criminals do get in. These are all accomplishable things, and no one should feel that you're alone. There's lots of fantastic frameworks from NIST to CISA to the can help uh, roadmap these things. None of us are alone. We're all interconnected at this point and let's keep the criminals out together. Amen to that. Thanks, Eric, for joining us. Greatly appreciate it. Hope those tuning in today learned something from this and look forward to the next time. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Melinda. Thanks, everybody. Thank you again to Eric Regnier, Rob Collings, and Melinda Goodman for their insights on this latest episode of Tip of the Iceberg. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform like Google Play, Spotify, Apple, and more. And join us again soon. Thanks so much. Bye.